Testing, testing, one, two, three, 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 three. Welcome, everyone. We can't do backflips. We can't back that ass up. But we are back on Backflip Cinema, the podcast. I'm your host, Zoe. That's Z-O or Z-O. For those of you outside of the U.S., taking a look back at the movies of yesteryear. It's the 78th episode. Thank you for downloading or streaming. We really appreciate it. The reason we started this show was to strengthen the bond between my son, Zach, and Mizo. We watched movies that I loved when I was growing up in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. And I'm going to tell you about what Zach thought about those classes of movies. One that we just watched this morning. We bring you this show absolutely free. And we'd really appreciate it if you could support us by giving us a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Finally, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. You can find the details in the show notes. And uh, I just want to apologize in case you hear any popping or any whistles or crackles going on in the background. I've tried to reduce them as much as possible, but I waited too late to try to record this episode. And now, today being July 4th, things are just kind of popping off. So... <laughs> By the time you decide to listen to this, it'll probably be Tuesday already. And um, I also want to mention, we we got a lot of new downloads last week for the last episode, which was Starship Troopers. Thank you for the new listeners. I really appreciate you. I hope you stick around. I hope that I have proven myself worthy of your time. I hope that the information you found intriguing, and I hope that we are entertaining. So with that being said, Let's move on to talk about the movie that we just watched. That movie being Superman. Cue the music. Wait, wait. We we did we don't have the rights to the to that music. We we can't we can't replay that music. I, but just imagine the theme to Superman, the movie starring Christopher Reeve that was released in 1978 by Warner Brothers. Just imagine John Williams' theme going through your head as I as I read, and and you understand the feeling I get when I watch this movie. So to tell you about this movie, an infant alien arrives on Earth. He appears human, but the kindly couple who finds him witness that the child possess possesses extraordinary powers. The couple adopts the child and raise him to value truth, justice, and a better world. When the child is an adult, he commits to using his power to protect people from danger. In time, the public would come to refer to him as Superman. So this movie was released on December 15th, 1978, produced by Dove Meat, I'm sorry, Dove Meat Films and Film Export AG and Entertainment Film, International Films. Ooh, got that wrong on the off the break, I got it wrong. <laughs> yeah, international film or international film productions. It grossed over $134 million in the U.S. and Canada and over $300 million worldwide on a $55 million budget. That dims big bucks, dims is some big, big, biggie, big, big bucks back in 1978. And I was thinking that uh, seeing that it cost $55 million, I felt like it having only grossed 100, $134 million, it's kind of, they really spent a lot of movie and, and not a lot of return, especially compared to what 50, what you would expect $55 million to bring back in, in today's uh, market. But it is considered at the time 
a box office bonanza, a box office success, if you will, and with with uh, rave reviews. So, this movie stars, as I mentioned earlier, Christopher Reeve as Superman and Clark Kent. He's also appeared in Somewhere in Time, Death Trap, and The Aviator. And you will find that he might have had a, a more notable career had he made different decisions on his roles. I'm really su- surprised that he is not a bigger star since everybody regards him as like the perfect man to play Superman, even at the time, even when he was being cast. And he went up a bunch of other more notable actors. But the more famous actors really didn't want to play Superman. So they really, the studio really had to find an unknown actor who's hungry for a Hollywood role or their first Hollywood role. And they found like an almost perfect person to play Superman in Christopher Reeve. But outside of the Superman movies, really, or anything like related to Superman, he really does not have like a career that, you know, people are talking about. Not not a very high profile career. Up next is Margot Kidder. She played Lois Lane. She's been in Black Christmas, the the Amityville Horror, and she was a voice on Captain Planet and the Planeteers as Gaia. So uh, I don't know if she was Gaia first or if Whoopi Goldberg was Gaia first, but uh, they both played Gaia in that show. Gene Hackman played Lex Luthor. He's been in some of the greatest films of all time, including... The French Connection, The Royal Tenenbaums, and Unforgiven. Marlon Brando played Jor-El, also played in some of the greatest movies of all time. He's been in Apocalypse Now, The Godfather, and On the Waterfront. Ned Beatty played Otis. He's been in Network, Deliverance, and Shooter. Valley Perrine, she's been in, she played, ooh, goodness gracious, I'm getting it all mixed up. She played Eve Techmacher and Tessmacher, and I um I never realized that this character had a first name. So her name is Eve Tessmacher, and she's been in Lenny, WC Fields and Me, and Can't Stop the Music. Jackie Cooper played Perry White. He's a notable um TV actor, and he, as you will see, they kind of got him on the last uh, last moment, and he's been in uh a popular TV show called The People's Choice from 1955 to 1958, and a show called Hennessy that was on from 1959 to 63. We have Mark McClure, who played Jimmy Olsen. He's been in Back to the Future, Apollo 13, and Freaky Friday from 2003. Glenn Ford played Paul Kent. He's been in Glinda, Pocketful of Miracles, and The Big Heat. Phyllis Thaxer, played Ma Kent. She's been in 30 Seconds Over Tokyo, a movie called Bewitched, not related to the sitcom, and No Man of Her Own. Finally, we have Jeff East, who played young Clark Kent. He's been in Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn, and Pumpkinhead. This movie was directed by Richard Donner, who gave us some of the greatest movies that we've ever loved, including Lady Hawk, all of the Lethal Weapons in the Lethal Weapon series, and Scrooged and Maverick. Those are just some of the movies that uh, that he's directed. This movie was written by 
Jerry Siegel, Joe Schuster, and Mario Puzo. So Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, obviously, they created Superman for DC Comics. And Mario Puzo is the only credited writer and screenwriter. He's also written The Godfather, Earthquake, and The Cotton Club. And what I forgot to do, for some reason, they don't have the screenwriters that uh, were featured on this movie. Um, because there there are four credited screenwriters as I watched the movie earlier today, and I forgot to put them on there. And um, But for some reason, they're not on IMDb. And I wanted to make a note of that because there were apparently some extensive rewrites to Mario Puzo's original story. So to continue, the music was by John Williams. He's also made music for JFK, Hook, Nixon, and Dracula from 1979. I mean, you know the name John Williams. You know all the great movies that he's composed for. So I just thought I'd throw some in there that you might not have been familiar with. Uh, he is still going strong, making music for some of our some of these great shows that are coming out. And it's just incredible that uh, he's able to consistently provide some great music. And so that's it for the opening credits. If you're enjoying the show, I just want to reiterate that you can get T-shirts, hoodies, mugs, face masks, jerseys, and more at our refurbished website, backlookcinema.com slash shop. You can check weekly for new designs or products. I'll leave links to teespring.com and teepublic.com in case there's anything else there you want to want, particularly those nifty pint glasses. Up next, we're going to skip straight to our favorite parts. All right, here we are. We're going to talk about, our, well, I'm going to talk about my favorite parts in the movie, and I'm going to let you know what Zachary thought of the movie. So first off with Zachary, Zachary found this movie somewhat slow, and he noted the lack of fighting in this movie. And and I just realized that, yeah, the Superman doesn't fight anyone in this movie. Yeah, he has opponents, and he has stuff to accomplish, and there are things in his way, and he's actually defeated at one point, but he never actually fights people right <laughs> people throw stuff against him and and he doesn't he just basically captures them and takes them to the police or he takes them to jail but he doesn't actually he doesn't get into a punchy punch with anybody and there is a lack of fighting with any of the other characters and nobody else really seems to get in there i mean there are some firefights you know they're common police fighting criminals and that sort of thing some car chases but there's no superhero action fighty fights and and he noticed that uh and this, the, he did have some parts that he liked but overall the movie was much slower for him considering how stories are told today compared to how stories were told back then particularly with this movie and this movie was two hours and 30 minutes long and they could have seriously cut 30 minutes from the movie because i did know that there were some slow parts to take his point so some of his favorite parts were uh, the parts with Lex Luthor, the parts that focused on Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor, Otis, and Miss Tessmacher. Uh, and those were some funny parts. That was the comedy relief points of the movie, uh, particularly with Otis. So he loved those parts. And he he liked some of the action that Superman did get into 
even though they weren't, you know, the the typical superhero action that you normally see in uh, in modern films. So such uh, the Otis parts, like when Otis is being followed by the police, Otis goes down to the subway station. He goes into an alcove and the alcove kind of whisks him away. They don't, the police don't know how he's whisked away, but they just, they do know that there's a door there somewhere. So one of the officers, he goes to where he thinks the door is to try to get it to open, but uh, it, it, he can't get it open. There's a train approaching. And so he, maybe he can just stay flush against the alcove and the train to go past him, the, the subway train, and he'll be fine. The thing is, uh, <laughs> Lex Luthor sees all this because he's got cameras around a secret hideout and he he goes through the emotions of pushing the police into, you know, he shifts the door in the alcove. So instead of sliding into the secret layer, it pushes outward into the train track and he shoves the police into the train and uh, and the police is killed, presumably. So this is the trip of it is is like when Otis gets inside and Lex Luthor uh tells him, you know, Otis, you've been followed. He's knocking over lamps, looking behind him, trying to see like he thinks like there's somebody like right behind him, not realizing that uh Luthor had taken care of it already. Uh or there's a part where Luthor is in his library in this grand underground lair, and he's on a ladder that you a type of ladder on a in a library that would have like rolling wheels. And he's looking for something and he needs to go to the M section and, and Otis anticipate this desire. So before Luthor can ask him, um, Otis grabs the ladder and swings it over to the other end of the library or, or the shelves that where Luthor is at. But Luthor is like not really standing on the, <laughs> on the ladder at the time. He's like reaching for something. And so when, Otis shifts the ladder. Uh, Luthor kind of falls off, but he has to grab onto the shelf to keep from falling down. Because <laughs> Otis is is barely smart. He, he's he's barely got anything going over there. So his, now his boss is like hanging from the bookshelf, waiting for Otis to bring back the ladder or something, even something small like Otis bringing Luthor the his. Luthor has gone swimming in a swimming pool in his underground lair, and then he wants to get out of the pool. So Otis brings Luthor his his bathrobe so he can dry off. But you know, Otis goes into the pool to give Luthor his bathrobe. It's like, like he he don't he don't have it all going. Uh, he doesn't. He's not rolling with a full deck. I think that's how you say that. So and then. Uh, the the final moment is uh one of the best parts is um so Luthor wants to hijack some missiles now he's not taking the missiles but he's going to uh create a roadblock so his crew can surreptitiously reprogram the missiles that the military are hauling now these happen to be now he knows that these missiles are are supposed are scheduled for a nuclear missile test and so they're hauling these nuclear missiles around the country to their position so they can be tested. So uh, somehow he finds out the route. You would think that the military would keep these routes secret or why would they even announce it in a newspaper? I don't know. And then um, he, he creates the first robot he creates by, he sets this car. uh, He sets up an accident with this car. And then he has Miss Tess Mocker lie next to the car uh, unconscious 
And then the military would come by. They would see the car. It's overturned. They see a beautiful woman uh, lying on the road unconscious. And then um, so they would stop the convoy to assist her. And in the meantime, uh, and then Lex would show up pretending to be a paramedic. And in the meantime, Otis would go into the rocket to reprogram the rocket. Now, he's not smart, so he has everything written down on his wrist, the numbers that he's supposed to punch into the rocket, in the rocket to change its target or whatever. And so um, he does all of this, and then Luthor packs up his gang, and they go away in the ambulance, and he, he asks Otis, so Otis, it's not that I don't trust you, but... I don't trust you. So what what did you do? What what numbers did you punch in? And so Otis begins to tell what he did and he he messed it all up. He he didn't put in the right numbers. He put in the wrong coordinates and then that's and that's that's one of the funny moments in the movie. And then the second time with the second rocket because there were two rockets that are being hijacked. Uh this time Lex has Miss Tessmacher go in and basically do the same thing. And he doesn't have to ask her because she's, you know, if if uh, she was successful because he knows that she's way more confident. So uh, the, the second method of stopping the missiles is that he has an enormous tractor trailer that blocks the entire convoy. And he pretends that he's lost. And while he's conferring with the military on how to, because they're on a two-way road, but both trucks the convoy both the convoy and his enormous truck are taking up the entire road even though it's a two-way road so i don't, I don't know how <laughs> how how you uh get in that predicament but so the entire road is blocked and so while he's conferring with the military that's when miss testmarker goes and does whatever but there, there are interesting plans and uh, i can appreciate how how he's able to change up and and make it creative at least uh, it was creative for the movie audience in order to do these things. Uh, is it realistic? No, not really. I don't see how how it's realistic, but it was it was fun none, nonetheless. It's it's a comic book movie. Chill out. Anyways, so th- those are some of the parts that uh, Zachary liked. I I um I I liked the part when stuff was happening. I, I did not appreciate the slower part. So the, the movie is basically, I think, divided into four acts. So the first act was the Krypton moment where you see first it's Jor-El acting as a prosecutor in his black suit, condemning three criminals to uh, be sentenced to the Phantom Zone. They don't mention the Phantom Zone in the movie, but that's where they're going. So that the whole part, the whole Krypton part was was pretty neat. I like the, the imagery. The, the costumes were awesome. It kind of uh, kind of harkens back to how, I guess Hollywood viewed advanced species in um back in the olden days. Uh, it was very sterile looking. Everybody wore white. The buildings were white. The interiors were white. There's no color in in this uh scenario, and including people, I believe. Another interesting thing is that um all the members they wore uh the criminals didn't but. All the members of the council, they on their white suits, they wore their family crests. And I noticed the women on the council did not wear their family crests, only the men. So I was like, aha, that, that's interesting. So first you see him condemn the criminals to death. And then he comes back in his white suit and he's talking to the, he's trying to convince the council that Krypton's gonna explode 
and the council doesn't believe him. There's like, you know, it's we we don't. Our evidence says that it's just the planet shifting its orbit. It's not going to explode. And then they tell him that he's. They instruct him that he is not to cause a panic. If that he if he caused a panic among the population, then they will charge him with uh, sedition or treason or whatever. So he promises not to leave. He promises that he and his wife won't leave Krypton. So, but that that's when he cooks up a plan to send his son so uh to earth so it's all it's all nice it i remember there are stories uh that marlon brando he i don't know if i included included this in trivia but marlon brando was did not want to do a whole bunch of work for this movie he didn't want to work for uh more than a couple of weeks on this movie he wanted top billing he wanted a massive amount of money and plus some money on the back end and uh, he barely wanted to get out of his trailer. So <laughs> he didn't want to memorize his lines. So he had his lines basically written everywhere. They're, they were written on uh, the crib where he's putting uh, young Kal-El, baby Kal-El, into the spaceship. And uh, he does, and he, all of his lines are written on the crib. And then he has this thing where he wanted it to be spontaneous. That That's his excuse for not memorizing his lines but all that being said you know it's still fairly good acting christopher reeve complained that marlon brando was phoning it in but still even (laughs) even on brando's worst day he's still a fairly good actor you can't tell that he's he's putting in his the most minimal effort that he could for this performance i mean it, it was fine to me but um the, so all of that, the, the set design, the costume, all of that was just fantastic. So, uh, I re- and it was an influence to future versions of Superman for decades to come. So I really enjoyed all of that. And the second act was Superman as a boy, as a boy, a boy growing up on a farm. So obviously, there's no Superboy in this story. So. <laughs> Is Clark Kent basically trying to hide his powers because his his pa, his adoptive father, is uh, afraid that uh you know the government will take him away and start studying him. So he hides from the public so that the government doesn't come looking for him. So so that part was fine. There, there was uh is a lot of heartfelt moments in uh, in this second act. And then, but it, this is where it, uh, it doesn't slow down quite yet. You know, he, um, after, uh, a sequence of him, uh, at the funeral of his adoptive father, he decides it's time for him to move on. And then he gets to, uh, he goes to the North. So we assume us comic book fans assume that he goes to Antarctica since that's not Antarctica. He goes to the Arctic. So he goes to the Arctic because in the comics, that's where the Fortress of Solitude is. And that's where it is built in the movie. It's, it's built somewhere north in the movie. We don't know exactly where in the movie, but uh, comic fans assumes that it's in the, in the North Pole or very close to it. Anyways, <laughs> uh, it starts to slow down after that, like right, right at the end of the second act. Uh, yeah, the second act. That's it. Really starts to slow down, and then um, it picks up a little bit again in the third act with Clark Kent in uh, the Daily Planet. So this is where 
this is where uh, Clark Kent really splits off his personalities uh, between Clark and Superman. So he's already decided that he's going to have a dual identity. So when you when you see Clark in the uh, as young Clark on the the farm, he's basically uh, since it's only one identity, he's basically acting like a regular kid. He's you know he's not slouching. He doesn't wear glasses. He's just a regular kid, just you know existing. But when he goes to Metropolis, that's when he puts on the glasses. That's when he slouches. He's he's not standing his full height. Uh, that's when he talks with a stutter. That's when he actually speaks at a slightly higher octave than his normal speaking than his normal speaking voice. So basically, what I'm talking about is Christopher Reeve's performance is fantastic. It's one of my favorite things about this movie. That's what everybody notes about this movie. That's why they say that his is like the perfect Superman because of his performance. So when you think about uh, people changing their voices to hide their identity, they usually refer to Kevin Conroy in Batman the animated series where he spoke at a lighter voice as a lighter voice when he was speaking as Bruce Wayne and as a um, deeper voice when he spoke as Batman, it was a deeper, grittier voice. So, People uh, kind of refer to Kevin Conway as being the first to do this. But if you go back even further, you find really it's Christopher Reeve, Christopher Reeves, who was first to do this because you notice the difference. And then um, there's actually one scene where Clark is considering telling Lois Lane that he's really Superman. So he he takes off his glasses. He stands up while. This Lois is not in the room at the time, but he takes off his glasses. He stands up straighter. He's he's uh he talks in a deeper voice, and he he's about to call Lois. He's like, hey Lois, and then he changes his mind at the last minute, and he puts his glasses back on. He slouches, and it's like he's really two different people. And even uh, and I was considering uh, I'm I'm still in the process of of writing a blog about what I think about. Superman's dual identity is like why would people not guess that Superman and Clark Kent are the same person and really when you look at this performance with Christopher Reeves you can easily see how Superman and Clark Kent um they feel like two different people and it would be hard for people to come to the conclusion that they're both the same person so uh the action sequences were pretty neat um in this act where you know uh, Superman reveals himself for the first time to save Lois Lane. Uh, so he, the Lois Lane gets to a helicopter and it's a news helicopter. She's a reporter and she, uh, she, the helicopter has some mechanical problems and they're on the roof of a building. They start to fall off the, the building. So that's when Superman, where Clark sees it, he goes, changes to Superman. And then one of my favorite lines of all the movies probably the best line in all of the superman movies as clark kent steps out there's a uh the i don't know if this guy is a pimp but he kind of feels like a pimp <laughs> so there's a black guy and he sees superman and he's like who man that's a bad outfit <laughs> and and it, and it was it was a bad outfit so anyways superman goes save lois lane it's a, and it's a great sequence and they have, and then following this, they have a lot of these sequences where he's going around, he's stopping like petty criminals, uh, a jewel thief climbing on a building. He stops that guy. You know, he doesn't fight the guy. He 
appears on the side of the building. The guy is climbing a tall building with these suction cups. And then he looks up and he sees Superman standing there blocking his path. And he's shocked to see Superman. So he falls and Superman rescues him and then takes him to the police. Or there's where Superman, he stops this, uh, th- this uh, I guess these guys on boats, they just rob something. They get on a boat and then Superman is standing on a boat and then he takes the entire boat to uh, the police headquarters where they can be booked. Or there's uh he helps a cat out of a tree. And it's funny that this particular scene, because a lot of succeeding superhero movies refer to the Superman rescuing a cat from a tree when uh to I guess to differentiate themselves from Superman. Like they're they're tough, they're grittier than Superman. Like I'm not gonna save a cat out of a tree. I'm here to punch criminals' faces, that that sort of thing. So um, you, you so you get a lot of these moments until the movie shifts into Lex Luthor interfering with Superman. So Lex Luthor had he already has this plan in place to create extra real estate by destroying causing the San Andreas Fault to have such an uh, an eruption that the western half of California falls to the sea. He creates new real estate because of the land that he had already bought that uh, would he feels that would enrich him. His entire motivation is is money. So he has this plan, but now you got this Superman going around with these fantastic powers. So he wants to preemptively stop Superman from disrupting his plans and literally invites Superman to come visit him at his lair. He does he does this with like a bogus bomb threat. He already has devised a way to he's figured out uh that Superman is vulnerable to kryptonite. And um he devised a way to trap Superman, he traps Superman, he, he sends his missiles off. As far as he's concerned, he's done. But um the only problem is that one of the missiles is headed towards um Hackensack, New Jersey which is where Miss Tessmacher's family lives. So she can't have her family being murdered by Dax Luthor. So she rescues Superman after he agrees to save her family first before he saves the missile that's heading towards to San Andreas Fault. So he goes through and uh, uh, he does, does all the things. He, he, res- he, he gets, he's able to catch one missile and, uh, tosses it into space, but he doesn't catch the second missile. Just while he's in space, the second missile heading towards the the fault line hits its target. So now he got he has to go and he has to kind of uh, hold up or keep the fault from I don't know degrading. I guess so. He goes underground and try to I don't, I don't even know what the words I'm look, the words I'm looking for because because nothing at this point nothing he does is making any sense. So he's basically trying to keep the western coast from of california from collapsing and he succeeds so now but it's still a massive earthquake and it's still aftershocks from that quake so he he tries to go and um do a bunch of rescues from that quake at this same time lois lane and and jimmy olsen are also in this part of town lois lane is for some interviews of this some mysterious person buying up a bunch of worthless land so she's actually driving uh a, 
she she's finished her last interview and i guess she's driving to her hotel or wherever she's going and her car is out of gas because she's one of those types of people that doesn't regularly fill up her car and um and there's a and she's in the middle of the earthquake her car runs out of power the earth swallows up her car because of the earthquake and superman doesn't get there in time and he goes around and and he reverses time and saves lois and then presumably uh finish the other saving that he had to do and then he captures lex luthor and brings him to a prison and and that's the whole movie so uh the parts I didn't like was uh, the middle part where Superman takes Lois on a flight. Uh, he flies her around and then he um, brings her back to her home. And that was kind of long and slow and it went on way longer than it needed to. And it, it felt like, I think I understand what they were trying to do. They, they wanted to uh, imbue a sense of romance between um, Clark uh, well, between Superman and Lois, without them actually getting in entangled in like a full blown love affair, so this is their way of doing it. And I guess at the time it didn't bother me so much, but now watching it now, it, it feels long and it feels like gratuitous and unnecessary. I feel like the only thing they really needed was the interview between Clark Kent and well Superman and Lois, and that was a pretty fun scene as well. And I don't think they, they needed the extra flight thing. Or if they felt like Superman needed to take Lois on a flight, it should have been shorter. And um, there's some extra trivia about that that I'll talk about later on. And then uh, the part that I absolutely hate that I always talk about when I refer to this movie is Superman turning back time. So uh, not that he turns back time, but he turns the way he does it. He So he turns back time. He goes into low earth orbit he and he flies around the earth and the opposite of way is rotating and he flies around so fast that the earth stops its normal rotation and then rotates where he's flying and then this rotation turns back time and then he turns back time for i don't know maybe an hour and then he goes back the other way and the correct way that the earth is supposed to rotate and the earth rotates the correct way and then time moves forward again so all of this is kind of bunk to me this that's not how that's not how rotation works it's not how time works and it bothers me so much that they would do this so yeah so uh and then like when he turns back time n- nothing that he does makes sense after that like that um yes he saves Lois Lane but what about what about all those other disasters that were in progress when um when when he saved Lois I mean does he still uh stop the dam from breaking or the dam broke so did, does he still stop the water from the busted dam from reaching a, a small town does 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 he save all the other people that he saved it's it's all kind of confusing all, the only thing we know is that he turned back time and he saved Lois Lane so and if he's going to turn back time why not turn back time to when the missiles were uh in flight and and be fast enough to get both missiles that that's the thing like if you're fast enough to fly around to reverse time then why not be fast enough to catch both missiles that that have always bothered me that that has always bothered me now the cavette i will give is that and i'm sorry i'm going on this screed but i must i must (laughs) 
the only caveat that I would give it is that the the sky is big, and there are hundred, tens of thousands at least, tens of thousands of flying objects in uh, the airspace above the United States. So trying to find and identify like two tiny missiles compared to all the other objects that are flying in the atmosphere above the u.s that 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 would be a challenge for anybody even superman so maybe he had a hard time finding that first missile going towards hackensack and he finally found it caught up to it and they were to do what he had to do with that missile and didn't have time you know because of the time it takes to find the missile in the first place didn't have time to catch the second missile i can i can almost get that but still if if you're fast enough to turn the earth backwards and you're fast enough to catch both missiles I I think I believe but um that that was that's always been my gripe about this movie and I it bothered me when I first watched this movie when I was 10 years old and or how old was I I was 8 or 9 or 10 when I saw this movie um it's kind of hard to tell because uh, I I it must have been earlier in the film's release I believe it was in 1979 and I believe it was 9 years old when I saw it it came out in December 1978 I think I saw it in 1979. Uh, I remember that my mom took me to this movie and I know she took me because we were late and we came in during the opening credit sequence, which was long, thank goodness. So I didn't I didn't miss any of the story. But <laughs> that's that's the consequence of my mom taking me to the movie is that there's a fair chance that I'm going to be late to that movie. So, uh, so I saw it in the theaters and... Um, when I saw it, the theater was crowded. I remember that, so that's why I believe it was early in the run. So I, uh, I either, I probably, I may have seen it sometime in December, but I think it's more likely that I saw it, uh, like in January in 1979, and the theaters would have still been crowded because the theaters were smaller, and movies stayed in movie theaters for a long time back in the day. So it, it, I think um, Superman was one of the earliest films that it's like, no, actually, I don't know. No, they, they didn't have video cassettes in 1979, I don't think. At least they didn't have any that the populace could. Uh, maybe they did. I don't know. I'm confused at this point. I, I just remember, I remember the laser disc. I remember the Superman laser disc. Anyways, um, going on a tangent again. The, what I'm just trying to say is that a 10-year-old or a 9-year-old, they have an enormous capacity to believe stuff. So it would it's very difficult to um, mess up their suspension of disbelief because they'll believe anything. But even at my young age, I couldn't believe that you could fly around the earth and turn back time. That, that bothered me all the way back then, and it bothers me now. But these are our favorite parts that I'm supposed to be talking about, but I, I, had, to, I had to talk about that. So, um, but yeah, I think the overall movie, it was, uh, it was good, but they did have some slow parts as Zachary had pointed out to me. And there was no fisticuffs between superheroes in this movie. And we have to wait for Superman two for something like that. I guess like if you're busy watching the boys or something like any Marvel movie, you, you kind of miss the, the action content of of your superhero movies and th this one uh was a little bit lacking also the special effects were really good i think i think they for the most part they still hold up 
they're they're not as fancy as modern cinema but for 1979 it's it looked really good it did look good to me even even now the only um they're only very small uh sections or there are only some scenes that don't really hold up today it's like the scene where young clark Kent is going up to the north and he's in the arctic region that looks like a soundstage it, it doesn't really hold up uh, but uh most of the I, I would say like this the flying sequences i think most of that really holds up um all of the where he's lifting heavy objects all, obviously th- those were practical practical effects so because it was all practical effects it was it lo- really holds up good so yeah um that's my take on superman those those were our favorite parts and so hang on we're going to go to the trivia all right here we are we are in the trivia section so let's talk about trivia from superman according to roger moore's autobiography he witnessed christopher reeve walking through the canteen at pinewood studios in full superman costume oblivious to the swoon to the swooning female admirers he left in his wake when he did the same thing dressed as clark kent no one paid any attention see that's that's what i'm talking about it it's the way you carry yourself it's not just what you look like it's kind of the way you carry yourself that helps people identify other people which is why i think that it's hard for anybody to really figure out that superman and clark kent are the same person christopher reeve proved to be an even greater asset than than anticipated after being cast reeves flew gliders as a hobby and used his experience as a pilot to make superman's flying feet more believe uh flying feel more believable his performance as both superman and clark kent was roundly praised and making the superhero's secret identity seem surprisingly convincing also reeve provided his voice for the air traffic controller giving the arriving helicopter pilot the current flying conditions to obtain the musculature to convincingly play superman christopher reeve underwent a bodybuilding regime regime i almost said regiment he underwent a bodybuilding regime supervised by david prowse the man who played darth vader in the original star wars trilogy according to jeff east who played young clark kent during the shoot or during the shot in which clark jumps in front of the train he was nearly hit by it however stuntman richard hackman grabbed him in just in time and east avoided being injured a man riding a motorcycle dragging a bag of dirt was used to make the effect of clark running down the dirt road after jumping in front of the train now here's what's funny um they jumped in front of a real train is that is that what happened i should have looked more into it but this bit of trivia is implying that he jumped in front of a real train and i don't see how or why they would want to do this I should have did more research. Anyway, continuing on. When the young Clark Kent races the train, he is said to be 18 years old, while Lois Lane, who is inside the train, appears to be considerably younger. Margot Kidder, who played the adult Lois, was four years older than Christopher Reeve, who played the adult Clark. 
This can easily be explained from the comic book source material where Superman has been shown to have slower metabolism and ages much slower than humans. This is either due to not being human at all or from the abilities given to him by Earth's yellow sun. Pro- probably him not being human. I'm, I'm going to go with that one. To maintain on-screen continuity, Christopher Reeve dubbed all of Jeff East's dialogue as young Clark Kent. East's voice was never heard during the film, though in the TV cut, since the extra footage was never dubbed to begin with, one can hear East's original voice a few times, occasionally leading to awkward moments where, in one scene, in certain small moments, his voice changes tone because of this. On his first day on the set, Marlon Brando suggested to Richard Donner that the cameras roll during rehearsal. Brando reportedly said, who knows, we might get lucky. According to Donner, that very first take was the one that was used in the finished film. Brando was notoriously lazy and was constantly pulling little stunts like this to lessen his workload. Christopher Reeve even complained about it in, in the interview, saying that Brando was phoning it in and it shows. This is where I say that. I don't think that it shows. He he may have been phoning it in, but it doesn't show to me. I think it's kind of annoying when you have an actor that doesn't... Like, is an actor that you admire and and you try to emulate the actor and, you know, you, you try uh, your version of method acting and you memorize your line and you have Marlon Brando come on the scene and he, he doesn't even bother memorizing his lines. And that, I guess, some people would find that irksome. So continuing on, Brando refused to memorize most of his lines in advance. In the scene where he puts infant Kal-El into the escape pod, he was actually reading his lines from the diaper of the baby. He told director Richard Donner that the only way to keep his performance fresh was not to over-rehearse, was to record the first time he read the lines, which I I guess it worked for him. And I alluded to that earlier. Initially, Gene Hackman refused to cut off his mustache to play Lex Luthor. In early one, in early one sheets of the movie, his face was featured with a mustache. Before Richard Donner and Hackman met face to face, Donner proposed to Hackman that if he would cut his mustache, Donner would cut his too. And Hackman agreed. It turned out later that Donner did not have a mustache at all. He wore a false mustache that he peeled off at the last minute. Hackman flatly refused to shave his head or wear a bald cap to play Lex Luthor. To get around this issue, Hackman's own natural hair was styled differently from scene to scene to give the appearance of him having changed hair pieces. Numerous hair pieces were visible in his underground complex. Hackman relented and wore a skull cap in one scene, which he is taken to prison by Superman. It is visible when he's when he angrily rips off his hairpiece to address the prison's warden, who questions who he is. Marlon Brando was paid three point seven million dollars plus a percentage of the gross for twelve days of shooting. The payment also covered the sequel, which was shot at the same time. Brando did not appear in the sequel because he sued Ilias Salkin, claiming Salkin had not paid him his percentage of the profits. He ultimately received about $14 million for 10 minutes of screen time. 
The footage shot for the sequel was used in Superman Returns from 2006. Brando was the highest paid actor at the time because of this deal. Alia Salkin was the producer of the Superman movies. So I think I'll read this later on, but he and uh, Donna get, get some kind of a tiff. <laughs> so, and uh, apparently uh, he gets into a tiff with uh, Marlon Brando and hence Brando suing the studio. Moving right along. It was Marlon Brando's idea to have Jor-El wear the same S symbol on his clothes that Kella would later wear as Superman. The Superman S logo that Brando wears on his white cloak looks the same as the one used for George Reeves' costume in the television show Adventures of Superman from 1952. This was probably an homage. Since this film, the idea of the S symbol being a Kryptonian family crest of the House of L has been incorporated into Superman's comic books and subsequent adaptations. So that's awesome. So we have a lot to thank Marlon Brando for. He contributed, I think, unknowingly, an enormous amount to the Superman mythos because ever since that movie, that is what we've seen. We've seen the S symbol represent Superman's family, not represent Superman. It's like before that moment, before Marlon Brando made that suggestion, the S was an S on his chest, and the S stood for Superman. As a matter of fact, in his earlier outings, the earliest versions of Superman, he had an S on his chest. It wasn't in a diamond crest, but it was in more like a shield, and it was clearly an S. In um, later versions of the symbol, it's, uh, it's more incorporated. The S is more incorporated into the diamond shape that encircles it. So it's, it's more fanciful. Or whatever, but you still see it's clearly an S. But Marlon Brando was like, Well, how about we make this instead of saying that it's an S, make it a symbol that resembles an S? It's a symbol that represents that is representative of the House of L. And, and that was brilliant, and that is what we've seen of the Superman mythos ever since. So kudos to Marlon Brando for that. Originally, the helicopter scene was simply going to have Superman save Lois from falling. Later, Richard Donner decided to have the helicopter drop, and the modified scene was called the double jeopardy scene. Steven Spielberg was offered a chance to direct this film. Producers balked at the salary he asked for. They decided to see how Jaws from 1975, which he had just completed, did at the box office. That movie was a huge success, and Spielberg went on to other projects. This year, he... Or, the year that Superman came out, he directed Close Encounters of the Third, Ti- Close Encounters of the Third Kind from 1977. That that's when that was released, and a year after he directed 1941, which was released in 1979. Both of which were bested by Superman at the box office. So it looked like Richard Donner won this round, but Spielberg caught up later. They would eventually work together on The Goonies in 1985. As the production budget and shooting schedule escalated, Richard Donner found the Salkins constantly on his back. Richard Lester was brought in to mediate the relationship between the director and his producers as both parties refused to talk to each other. Donner had effectively shot 75% of Superman II 
from 1980 when he was fired by the Salkins. Much of the footage for Superman 2 was written and shot simultaneously with the original. Before shooting was completed for the sequel, however, Donner was fired and replaced with Richard Lester, who reshot most of the footage directed by Donner. Um, so because this came about because they filmed Superman and Superman 2 simultaneously. It was going to be one long, one big story, one long, continuous story. And uh, I, I don't know if I go over this later on, but I'll just mention it now. So uh, Richard Donner wanted this huge, big production, but with big production comes big costs and he was spending a lot of money and the studio was getting nervous and at first they told him well just concentrate all of the profit all of your money all of the budget just concentrate on finishing superman one and don't worry about superman two and uh after but after he finished superman one um they fired him and they had somebody else this uh lester fellow finish up superman two because they they were like you're spending too much money let's let's nip this in the bud right away I, I wish they had gone ahead and let him finish there is a donner cut of superman 2 I, I haven't seen it but i am very curious about it the end title sequence is more than seven minutes long a record at the time of the film's release in 1978 this film's credit sequence cost more than most movies made up to that point that's crazy. That is crazy. Even the beginning credits, they were a little long. And it's like, instead of just like showing, giving you the name of the actor, like in the corner or the, there's very small type in the middle of the screen, each credit, like from the, the main actor or the highest credit actor all the way down to the director, you know, all, all the entire credit sequence, you had huge, large letters in fancy uh, CGI coming on the screen and, and it's funny right because you figure that they would just do that for the title but they did that for everybody in the opening credits it was kind of outlandish the way they did the opening credits but I guess he wanted to he, he wanted to impress upon the audience as they sat through the opening credits like you about to watch something hard you bought something watch something that's awesome and I, I want to expand on this awesomeness by these awesome opening credits it was it was kind of crazy. Robert Redford, Clint Eastwood, and James Conn were all offered the movie's title role. All three turned it down. Redford wanted too much money. Eastwood said he was too busy. And Conn said, there's no way I'm getting into that silly suit. Margot Kidder, Margot Kidder was originally supposed to sing the song, Can You Read My Mind, from the flying sequence with Superman. But Richard Donner disliked it. And changed it to a voiceover. So I'm not sure if uh, Margot Kidder can sing. But yeah, I think that was the correct choice in having her voice the words instead of singing the words. It, I guess it it starts to get too cheesy uh, with it becoming a musical in the middle of the movie. The, the other thing is that it, I don't think they needed that sequence at all. But But there it is. Uh, okay, I'll add this one interesting thing about the sequence that has to do with the Superman mythos. The thing is, is that um, Superman flies, but nobody understands why he flies. So I'm thinking that he flies with telekinesis. So if he's flying with telekinesis, then it stands to reason that anything he touches, he controls with telekinesis as well, which is why in the flying sequence, 
Lois, he doesn't actually have to hold Lois. He just has to touch Lois. He's barely holding on to Lois by her fingertips. And she has her other arm, like the fingertips on one hand. And then her other arm is flayed out like, like a wing on an airplane. It's like she's barely touching Superman and she's flying through the air. So I'm believing that Superman is holding her up with his telekinesis. This isn't actually explained in the movie, but it would explain how he's able to just hold, barely hold on to her fingers and, and she's flying through the air. Um, you can also see this in a, a, a more modern version of Superman in um, Zack Snyder's, I don't know if it was Zack Snyder's Justice League or if it was in the theatrical Justice League, but in the movie, Superman is rescuing a bunch of people by flying a building from the danger zone to a safe area. And he's basically holding on to a corner of the building to fly it. And obviously, this would not be possible. The The building would rupture into a thousand pieces if you just try to hold it by a tiny point. This is Superman's telekinesis in action. Uh, I think uh, it can be referred to as tactile telekinesis, being that as long as he touches something, he can lift it with his telekinesis. I'm getting too much in the weeds. Let, let's continue on. <laughs> so... Uh, Jack Klugman was the first choice to play Perry White. But when he turned it down, at the last minute, Eddie Albert tentatively agreed to the part, then demanded more money. With filming of Perry due to start soon the next day, a frantic search for a replacement actor resulted in Keenan Wyan. Win. I'm sorry, it's Win. And resulted in Keenan Win accepting the part. After a long flight, the 61 year old was rushed to the studio for screen tests. Afterwards, he complained of chest pains, was rushed to the hospital, and collapsed from extreme exhaustion. Now, obviously, they had to replace him with Jackie Cooper. Aaron. Smolinski, who played the infant Kal-El, would later appear in Uncredited in Superman 2 in 1983 as a little boy waiting outside a photo booth while Clark Kent was changing into Superman. He also played a communications officer in Man of Steel from 2013. Now, I've got to go and watch that movie just so I can try and find him as the communications officer. This is the second highest growing film from of 1978 behind Greece. I also came out that same year. I did this for M, who is the host of Verbal Diorama podcast, since Greece is one of her favorite movies. Christopher Reeve attended a Special Olympics fundraiser held at Arnold Schwarzenegger's house for the film's premiere in 1978. Reeve was offered but turned down two roles that went to Schwarzenegger, The Running Man from 1987 and Total Recall from 1990. This is what I'm saying. He made some really poor decisions because those were some awesome movies. Man. He, I really feel like he should have been in those movies. I feel like he would have been a greater star than he ended up being had he had done these two movies. To obtain the glowing effect of the clothing on Krypton, the wardrobe department spent weeks sewing tiny glass balls onto each actor's apparel. If the material was accidentally touched, the oils from the actor's hands would interfere with the lighting effect, leaving a dull patch on the costume. And that's it for the trivia. I hope you found that interesting. 
we're going to continue on, find out what the critics thought. All right, here we are. We're going to see what the, the critics, the critics thoughts, the critics thoughts. I, I always have a hard time saying that. But at any case, we got these uh, quotes from Rotten Tomatoes. The critics gave Superman 94% and the audience gave it an 86%. And on IMDb reviews, it has 7.4 out of 10. So let's see what they say. Catherine Carroll from a contemporary review from the time that the film came out wrote for the New York Daily News. It is this year's answer to Star Wars, a movie that is pure escape and good and clean, unadulterated fun. Pauline Keel from The New Yorker wrote, Superman doesn't have enough conviction or courage to be solidly square and dumb. It keeps pushing swarmy big emotions at us, but half-heartedly. Now, I don't know. I guess I guess it's how empathetic you are that really determines how well you accept these emotions that the movies push at you. Judith Martin for the, from the Washington Post wrote, it's the simple earthbound quality of the film that makes this comic book fantasy soar. I tend to agree with you. David Kerr from the Chicago Reader wrote, the film is best when it takes itself seriously, worse when it takes the easy way out in giggly camp as it does finally and fatally when Lex Luthor enters the action. See, I have the opposite reaction. I think it's uh, the Lex Luthor scenes provides the comedy, the comic relief. And, and I really appreciated it. I thought, yes, I agree that it is dumb, but I, I actually enjoyed that part of the film. And interestingly, this is where, uh, this film is considered much more serious than the other films that came before it. Like this is actually a kind of response to Batman from 1966. They really wanted this movie to be much more serious than their earlier depictions of superheroes. Jeff Andrews from Time Out wrote, by keeping the spectacular possibilities open through the opening scenes of the destruction of Krypton and the subsequent growth of to manhood of the planet's only son on the plains of the Midwest, the film allows naivete and knowingness to coexist. Okay, I'll, I'll take that. Finally, Ken Hank from Mountain Express wrote, too jokey to be more than mildly amusing. I don't know. I thought joking leads to amusement. Here's the thing. I would have had a... I would have rather had a more thoughtful um, because, you know, I try to blend the negative with the positive reviews. And this was one of the, you know, Rotten Tomato reviews and as as opposed to the Fresh Tomatoes from some of the other ones I read. And I want a a more thoughtful criticism of this, but this is kind of like a word salad that doesn't make sense. But but that's it for the critics. So um, finally, Superman the movie is as of this recording, available on HBO Max. That's it for today. Happy July 4th. Once again, I apologize for all the popping in the background, if you can hear it, or if I was unable to filter it out. 
Since this movie is really the first half of a grander story, we'll do a rare back-to-back viewing. So next week, we'll check out Superman 2, also on HBO Max. Follow us on Twitter or TikTok at Backlick Cinema or on Facebook or Instagram at Backlick Cinema Podcast. For updates, don't forget you can contact us with any questions or comments or suggestions at fanmail at backlickcinema.com. One last time, if you like this show, then please help us grow. To do this, you can subscribe to the show, rate us, or write a review on Spotify, Spotchaser.com, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. Believe me, it matters. Be safe. Share a movie from yesteryear with your family. Hug your loved ones. And if you're going to be anything, be outstanding.